Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 20, The Celtic Invasion of Greece, The Gallic Tsunami. In the last episode, we covered the rough outline of Celtic history and the culture of the Latin period, down to roughly 300 BC. As I spoke before, the Celtic world had always maintained connections with the Mediterranean. Trade goods such as wine and jewelry were highly prized, and the centralization of Celtic life resulted in a movement closer to these Greco-Roman populaces. This period, starting at roughly 400 BC, can be effectively called the Era of Celtic Migrations. It's theorized that the increased political stabilization brought on by the Latin period resulted in a population explosion. So increasing social agitation and need for farmland and booty pushed the Celts further south and east. We have accounts by the Greek historian Polybius and the Roman historian Livy that the Boii and other Celtic tribes had penetrated the Po Valley, a stretch of land immediately south of the Alps in northern Italy. Initially, the fertility of the land is what attracted Celtic settlers, but authors maintain that the wealth of the Etruscans and various Italian tribes had made for a prime target for raiding. The culmination of these events resulted in the sack of Rome by the Gallic chieftain Brennus in roughly 390 or 389 BC. While the torching of Rome remains the most famous incursion of Celts in Mediterranean society, it was only about a century later that yet another explosion occurred, this time in the lands of Greece and Asia Minor. Seemingly out of nowhere, a vast horde of Celtic warriors had appeared and swept across the eastern heartlands of the former Macedonian Empire. But in fact, there were clear warning signs of things to come for decades before. Migrating Celtic tribes had been attempting to enter the region of Illyria, east of Macedon in the early 4th century BC. But apparently, we don't have any recorded contacts between the Macedonian kings and the Celts until the reign of Alexander the Great. Arian writes of a Celtic embassy who approached Alexander in 336 during his Balkan campaigns. They were apparently not too impressed by the Macedonian king, claiming that the only thing they truly feared is if the sky fell down upon them, which really didn't suit Alexander's ego about his exploits, and he simply sent the Celts away. They later reappear in Babylon at Alexander's court in 323. But still, there seems to be no signs of trouble. Or was there? The stability of the Balkan regions was always under question, but the presence of Thracian and Illyrian tribes had always kept the Celts at arm's length from settling near Macedon. But Alexander's reconquest of the Balkans in the aftermath of his father's death had weakened these buffer zones, and probably the biggest contributor to instability was due to the wars of the Diodohoi. The regions of the Balkans and Macedon were relatively untouched by the fighting of the successors for the first 25 years or so, thanks to the iron control of King Cassander in Macedon and King Lysimachus in Thrace. According to the 2nd century AD writer Pausanias, a main source of our topic, he speaks of a Celtic chieftain named Cambalis unsuccessfully attacking Macedon in 298. This is the only recorded attempt during the period of the Diodohoi. And while it was unsuccessful, the wealth of the Greeks, as Pausanias puts it, had whetted the appetite for Celtic chieftains looking to increase their prestige. 
In the final stages of the wars of the Diodoi, the civil wars in Macedon, the death of Lysimachus, and the usurpation of the Macedonian throne by Ptolemy Keranos had now left the region of Macedon, Greece, and the Hellespont dangerously vulnerable to attack. The year was 280 BC. Ptolemy Keranos, the Thunderbolt, had been king of Macedon for almost two years now. His usurpation of the Macedonian throne in the wake of Lysimachus's death and his own assassination of King Seleucus had left him the sole power in the region. The former heir to the throne, Antigonus Gonatas, had attempted to retake the throne as soon as he had heard Ptolemy was declared king, but unfortunately for him, he was defeated and had to return back somewhere south into Greece. The implacable neighboring king, Pyrrhus of Epirus, was currently busy fighting Italian barbarians, and to sweeten the idea of peace, he was also gifted a daughter of Ptolemy. Life was pretty good. Going from self-exiled prince of Ptolemaic Egypt to king of his father's ancestral homeland in a matter of a few years, it was a nice change of pace. Sure, he had to do some things that would be considered questionable by our standards, such as assassinating your benefactor or marrying your half-sister Arsinoe, and then proceeding to murder her children as soon as the last scraps from the wedding party's dinner was to be cleared away for the dogs. But hey, that was the name of the game. Now, as Basileos, it was time to settle down and enjoy the fruits of power. Well, Ptolemy didn't have time to settle down. The instability of the region had prompted a massive warband of Celts to prepare for an invasion of Macedon and Thrace, headed by the warlord Brennus. No, it's not a coincidence that another Celtic leader was named Brennus. It's believed that the term Brennus was actually not a name, but rather a title, kind of like king. We'll just conveniently ignore this fact, and we'll just keep calling him Brennus. Brennus and his subcommanders Bolgios, Carithrius and Achaeocorius had decided to split their forces up, and what number that is we aren't given, but it must have been substantial. They initially had plundered and raided the tribes of Illyria and Thrace, wreaking enough havoc to force an embassy from the Thracian tribe of the Dardanians to offer 20,000 men to assist the Macedonians in their defense of the region. Ptolemy's response? No thanks. We've already conquered the Persian Empire using Macedonian arms. Why should this be any different? I'm not sure if Ptolemy was genuinely an idiot, or this was just an anecdotal moment to compare a mad villain like Ptolemy to a more noble savage like Brennus, but he also rode out with an army that was pitifully small. Again, no numbers, but it was enough for the sources to comment of how understaffed and untrained this force was. The lack of men can be explained if the speed and immediacy of the Celtic threat had forced Ptolemy to rush with any troops at hand, but again, he could just be an idiot. Ptolemy stationed his army against the Celtic one, commanded by Bulgios. Bulgios had sent ambassadors to Ptolemy, offering to go back home if the king just paid them. Being an idiot, Ptolemy, despite being outgunned and outmanned, tried to threaten them demanding that the submission of Celtic arms and their chiefs being surrendered as hostages. Now, Ptolemy's kingship was brand new, and he had only been taken through treachery and murder. 
So he probably felt that if he paid tribute to a barbarian force and didn't even attempt to offer battle, he could be seen as an ineffectual ruler and toppled for a lack of legitimacy. Besides, the Macedonian phalanx was a tried and two technique against the armies of Asia, Greece, and India. What could these wine-addled barbarians do against a professional force of Macedonians? Absolutely crush it, that's what. The battle was a disaster. Bravery had allowed the Celts to push back the Sarissas of the phalanx, and the Macedonians were quickly overwhelmed. Whoever didn't manage to escape in the rout was massacred, and Ptolemy, king of Macedon for a little under two years, was captured and was beheaded, and his head was placed upon a pike and carried around the victorious army. For a king whose reign began in blood, it was fitting that his reign should end in blood. To the Celts, Macedonian politics didn't matter much, but the event proved that the seemingly invincible phalanx could be defeated, and now with the Macedonian king dead, their armies scattered, there seemed to be nothing stopping the Celts from going further. And yet, further attacks didn't come, at least not initially. Despite their success, the Celts remained unsure of penetrating further into the Greek mainland. Perhaps the force was just a mere raiding party, and Brennus didn't believe that they had enough reinforcements to properly deal with the Greeks and Macedonians. While the Celts retreated in late 280 BC, Brennus had demonstrated to his local tribes and chieftains of the bountiful wealth he had acquired. This was an easy motivator, and Brennus had amassed an enormous force. Pausanias and Justin give the same number for the warband, roughly 150,000 infantry and 15 to 20,000 horsemen though this is hard to believe. Still, it must have been extremely formidable, and action had to be taken by the peoples of Greece and Macedon. When word reached Pella and the surrounding cities of the Macedonian heartland, everyone lost their minds with grief. Gates were shut, peasants flooded the temples, invoking the name of Alexander and Philip to rescue them from the hordes, begging for the same invincibility for Macedon that carried their armies to victory across the known world. While fear had paralyzed some or prompted others to seek comfort in the arms of the divine, some of the Macedonian nobility, Sensing an opportunity to fill the now vacated throne, called upon a man named Sosthenes. We are unsure of whether he was technically a king or not. Justin claims that the army swore oaths of loyalty to him only as a strategos, a general, rather than giving him the title Basileus. But the immediacy of the situation probably gave him substantial powers. There was word of second Celtic onslaught ravaging Thrace and Thessaly, and were marching further south through the villages of Macedon by the day. Sosthenes bravely led a relief force to confront the Gallic menace. Rather than engaging them in a full-scale battle, Sosthenes had tried to avoid the disaster of the previous year by using light skirmishing tactics to harass and strike at isolated Celtic groups, weighed down by plunder and captives. In addition, the Celts themselves were troubled by the cities of Macedon, many of which were fortified with some of the best anti-siege technology of the time, and the armies of Brennus lacked the siegecraft necessary to bust through the walls or gates. Cutting their losses, the Celts decided to turn their venture away from Macedon and towards the rich cities of central and southern Greece. 
the Macedonians were only too happy to pass this problem towards their unruly neighbors, and attempted to fix their own internal problems since they were now kingless and needed to recover from the ravages of the invaders. The Greeks were already aware of this incoming horde, with some cities like Cassandrea attempting to revolt while their Macedonian overlords were tied up, but not since the invasion of Philip II or Darius and Xerxes had they faced a threat like this a threat that would force the squabbling Hellenes to work together for the good of all. In 279 BC, for the second time in recorded history, the Greeks would rely on the hot gates, the famed pass of Thermopylae, where Leonidas and the Spartans made their stand against Xerxes' invasion almost 200 years before. The pass is now largely exposed thanks to the silting up and the recession of the Aegean, but during the Classical and Hellenistic period, it was a narrow strip of land, maybe no more than 20 meters wide, bordered by the Malian Gulf on its eastern flank, and mountainous terrain on its western. It was the most logical way to enter southern Greece and the Peloponnesus, as invading force after invading force, down to Alaric's Goths and the German army of the Second World War, all pushed through this region. Despite the failure of the Spartans to successfully defend the pass, it was the best hope for the Greeks and Macedonians who had arrived to stop Brennus. We have a detailed list of the soldiers who defended Thermopylae, men from all over the Greek world, Boeotians, Phocians, Aetolians, the entire fleet of the Athenians, Megarans, and Locrians, all banded together to stop the Gallic menace. Additional support came in the form of about a thousand Macedonian mercenaries and officers, provided by Antiochus I of the Seleucid Empire and Antigonus Gonatas. Whether it was out of genuine sympathy, fear for their own skins, or a way to garner support from the Greek cities, which was especially useful for Antigonus, who was itching to reach the throne of Macedon once again, the gesture was appreciated. This force numbering around 20,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, was commanded by an Athenian named Callippus. Callippus wanted a better fighting chance than Leonidas. So, to stagger the Gauls, he ordered for all the bridges in the region to be destroyed, and placed a body of horsemen and light infantry along the Sperchius River to dissuade the Celts from crossing. Brennus was no fool, and while the destruction of the bridges was certainly an annoyance, there is more than one way to cross a river. Knowing that his soldiers would just be tormented by the missiles of the Greeks if they chose to cross in the daytime, Brennus managed to successfully ford the Sperchius at night, ordering the tallest men to cross the river on foot, while the shorter ones would float atop makeshift rafts. Pausanias claims that 10,000 Gauls were able to reach the other bank by dawn, which strikes me as a bit far-fetched, but I suppose stranger things have happened. The Greek force was stunned at the sight of the mass of angry Celts suddenly on their side of the riverbank, and so they fled without delay back to the camp. When the next morning approached, the second battle of Thermopylae would begin. The infantry of the Hellenes stood silently in orderly formation, guarding the pass as the war cries of the Celts could be heard. Light infantry and skirmishers were stationed nearby and the Athenian infantry would provide support through missile troops along the nearby coast. Then, the initial wave came, and the bodies of Celt and Greek alike crashed against one another in a cacophony of shattering shields and screams. 
Celt and Greek alike fought bravely. Pausanias speaks of a Celtic warrior pulling out javelins that pierced his body and then throwing it back at the opposing Greek troops. A young Athenian, for his first time in the line, was killed after bravely fending off the Gallic troops, as his shield was later recovered and taken to Athens and enshrined. All in all, it was a bloodbath, and the Celts were eventually pushed back, realizing that brute force alone would not break through the hot gates. In an effort to damage the unity of the opposing Hellenes, Brennus ordered that a force of troops to march to the countryside and cities of Aetolia, encouraging a campaign of raping and pillaging that was so horrible, the Aetolian soldiers couldn't stand the thought of leaving their families to the mercy of the barbarians, and quickly returned home to stop them. The peoples of Aetolia would put up a valiant defense, with nearly every man, and reportedly women too, taking up arms and driving the invaders out of the land. Pausanias claims that of the 40,000 Celts who were sent to Aetolia, only half of them survived and returned back to Thermopylae. Though a commendable defense, this division of Greek unity was part of the plan. Despite Callippus wanting to make sure that he didn't have a repeat of the original Battle of Thermopylae, the Celts managed, thanks to the help of some desperate Aetolians who wanted the Celts to leave their lands, to use a hidden mountain pass, the exact same one that was shown to the Persians by Ephialtes in the first Battle of Thermopylae. You may be thinking, wow, this seems like a major oversight. Well, listeners, you're absolutely right. This also marks a trend where nobody successfully defends the pass of Thermopylae, and continuing the trend of invading barbarian army is led by traitorous groups through the mountain pass. Anyways, the Hellenes gained wind of this when survivors from the guards of the mountain pass ran back to the camp, informing them of the incoming Celts. The troops quickly boarded the ships of the nearby fleet, rather than be slaughtered to a man. Despite their best efforts, the Second Battle of Thermopylae ended in a victory for Brennus. And with no resistance, the Celts would push towards the riches that they dreamed of, at what the Greeks would call the center of the world, at Delphi. The city of Delphi on the slopes of Mount Parnassus is famed as the home of the Pythia, a priestess and oracle who was appointed to interpret the divine will of Apollo and would provide answers to any visitors who came to the temple. It was probably the premier religious site for the ancient Greeks, who called it the Omphalos, or navel of the world, and Greek religious life surrounded it. The oracle's word was well respected and travelers from all over the Greek world and beyond came to the temple to ask for guidance. The visitors would bestow to the temple a donation in return for the god's wisdom. The cynical side of us may believe that some of these gifts were bribes to encourage a more optimistic or favorable response from the oracle, or as a way to curry favor with Apollo himself. But in any case, the temple was extremely wealthy greater than the treasuries of some city-states, amassed in a glitter of gold, silver, and bronze. It was little wonder that Brennus would see this as a natural beacon for plunder. Despite no armies in sight, the city and temple was intimidating because of the natural production surrounding it. Fear of the divine wrath of Apollo had seemed, though, not to bother Brennus much, 
who claimed that taking the wealth of the temple should be no issue, since the gods, quote, stood no need of riches, as being accustomed rather to bestow them upon mortals, end quote. So he gathered his army and camped near the city in the year 278 BC, but dispatched a group under Achacorus to protect the Gallic baggage train further north. The Delphians were as horrified as you can well imagine, but they weren't alone. The religious sanctity of Delphi and the Pythia prompted a number of Aetolians and Phocians, roughly 1500 or so, to come to their aid. They were also granted additional favor by word of Apollo himself, who allegedly spoke that he would protect his own, meaning the citizens of Delphi. This is a bit of a side note, but if any of my listeners has read the works of Herodotus, this whole narrative by Pausanias seems to blatantly echo the Persian invasions of Xerxes. The unreasonably sized horde of barbarians, a final stand at Thermopylae, only beaten by the aid of Greek treachery around a goat path, and now an additional message from the gods to let their followers of the city that the barbarians shall not harm them. It cannot be understated, though, of how precarious of a situation the Greeks believed themselves to be in, and now, with their holiest sanctuary threatened, it was as if the end of the world was nigh at hand. To the benefit of the Hellenes, divine favor had made itself quite obvious. The armies of Brennus were pounded by freak weather, earthquakes, snow, and lightning. The din of storms deafened the Celts from hearing orders, and rock slides wounded several warriors. Pausanias even claims that a number of apparitions of ancient heroes were seen amongst them, inflicting chaos. This all was a blessing to the Greeks, who were screened by the weather as they made a counterattack. Phocian skirmishers, used to the mountainous terrain, were able to sneak up on the Gauls and bombard them with arrows, rocks, and javelins before disappearing back amongst the rubble. Brennus himself was grievously wounded and had to be carried off the battlefield after he passed out from a loss of blood. The tide continued to turn in Greek favor, when a number of Aetolians and Phocians managed to overwhelm Echicorius's troops and take the baggage train. Whether it was due to the weather, limited supplies, or religious superstition over behaviors that incurred divine wrath, the unity of the Celtic warband had begun to break down. Some warriors began to kill one another in a panic-induced frenzy, believing their allies to be Greek forces that had broken into their camp. What didn't help was word of Achicorius's loss of the baggage train, and that a score of furious Athenians, Aetolians, and Boeotians were in hot pursuit to help the citizens of Delphi. Brennus laid inside his tent, slightly delirious from the blood loss, but aware that the noose was tightening. With his army in shambles, his wounds grim, and a loss of honor and prestige among the fellow tribes back home guaranteed, he knew his days were numbered. Rather than letting himself be captured, and inevitably tortured and put on as a show, Brennus chose to meet his end on his terms. We have a number of variations of his death, one where he drinks himself to death and exacerbates his wounds, or he drinks one last offering of wine and proceeds to finish the job by plunging a dagger into his own chest. Either way, the mighty warlord was dead. When we see Brennus's characterization in the sources, it's remarkable at the level of respect the authors clearly had for him. This may be a continuation of the noble savage trope, where he would commit terrible atrocities upon the peoples of Macedon and Greece to almost a ridiculous level, including rumors of cannibalism and more. But clearly he demonstrated personal courage and was an intelligent commander. 
Justin especially uses Brennus as a foil for the despotic Ptolemy Kerenos, who, despite being more quote-unquote civilized, he was more treacherous and paid for it with a brutal death, versus his Gallic counterpart, who was straightforwardly brave and died honorably. The Greeks once again managed to defy the odds and push back the invading hordes. There is a degree of controversy by many historians who are at odds of whether the city of Delphi was actually sacked, some believing the victory to be propaganda on part of the Delphians. Some point to inscriptions that date to the period that claim the city was relatively untouched by Celtic hands, and ancient authors are relatively mixed on the outcome. Posidonius, a writer from the 1st century BC whose work only survives in fragments, maintains that the Celts couldn't have despoiled Delphi because of the emptying of the temple treasury during the Third Sacred War, roughly 80 years prior. Yet, we also have a story of the Aurum Tolosanum, the Tolosan gold, captured by the Roman general Quintus Servilius Capio from the Celtic Tectosages tribe in the late 2nd century BC, claimed to have been the treasure looted from the Temple of Delphi in Brennus' invasion. Perhaps we will truly never know. But it can be confirmed that this invasion would affect the political landscape of the Greek world for some time afterwards. The Aetolians, probably the most decisive force fielded against the Celts, had felt that their personal sufferings were unappreciated by the other Greeks. Who gave more public credit to the Phocians in their defense of Delphi in the Sauteria, the Salvation Festival? This beef between the Aetolians and other Greeks would continue to create controversy for the next few decades, and the other Greeks would use this confidence from the victory over the Celts to rekindle the thoughts of independence from Macedon. Though this would be quickly smote, a few years afterwards, some of the Greeks would form the Second Achaean League, which would rival the Aetolian League and affect Greek politics down to the Roman invasion. That remains a story for another day. The defeat of Brennus would mark a turning point in the Celtic invasions of Greece. While the victory at Delphi would end the main threat, there were still a collection of Gauls running around the land. They had decided to retreat northwards back into Macedon towards Thrace. Little wonder it was when a group of Celts was ambushed by none other than Antigonus Gonatus, who managed to engage in a field battle with them near Lysimachia in the year 277 and managed to secure a total victory. This turned out to be a blessing for Antigonus, who had been living in exile from his homeland for almost a decade since his father Demetrius Polyarchetes was kicked out of power. The throne of Macedon thereafter had been taken and lost by a series of kings and usurpers. But thanks to the victory over the Gauls, he was able to assert himself as a savior of Macedon, and was declared Basileos by his army. Minus some later hiccups with Pyrrhus, the Antigonid line would continue to rule the Macedonian kingdom for the rest of its existence. The final act of our story of the Celtic invasion takes us to Thrace and Asia Minor. In 278, in the wake of Brennus' defeat, King Nicomedes of Bithynia, a renegade state carved out of northern Anatolia, had sent an invitation to the Celtic tribes of the Tolistobogi, Tectosisagis, and Trochmi, who had apparently broken off from Brennus's invading force and settled somewhere in Thrace, raiding the cities of the Bosphorus like Byzantium. 
Nicomedes was having a difficult time managing his kingdom after a threat of invasion by Antiochus II, and was dealing with a civil war against his rival brother Zepoites, who was seeking the Bithynian throne. Feeling that his back was against the wall, Nicomedes decided to gamble and sent a message to the Celtic warbands, offering them land and wealth in return for service in his armies. With the prospects of booty, the three tribes packed up and brought everything with them into Asia, including their women and children. This wasn't a mercenary force, but a full-scale migration. This force was led by two chieftains, Leonorius and Lutarius, who led the fighting men to serve Nicomedes. The gamble turned out to be good for Nicomedes, not so good for the rest of Asia Minor and Anatolia. The might of Celtic auxiliaries was able to defeat Zepoites, and as a reward, they were given land to settle on. Unfortunately, the Celtic tribes were much more interested in the wealth of the Ionian Greek cities along the coasts, like Pergamon, Ephesus, or Miletus. Over the next few years, down roughly to 275 or so, the three tribes had split up to engage in large-scale raiding, blackmail, and looting across Anatolia. The cities turned to their big neighbor next door, the Seleucid Empire, for help. Antiochus I was dealing with a number of issues on his home front, namely an invasion of Syria by Ptolemy II, but was bombarded with pleas for help from the citizens of Asia Minor. We have trouble dating the exact time when Antiochus had offered to help, ranging from 275 to 268 BC, but the king eventually came to clash with a major Gallic force a decisive battle known to us as the Battle of the Elephants, which is best assumed to have occurred in 275. One surviving account of the battle comes to us from the 2nd century AD poet and writer Lucian. In it, he describes that the Celts numbered somewhere around 150,000 and vastly outnumbered the force Antiochus was able to summon. 150,000 is way too high, with Livy commenting that the force numbered roughly 20,000 men instead, and the whole story seems a bit silly, which makes sense since Lucian was famously a comic writer and satirist. But at the same time, it does project the emphasis on the presence of war elephants as a key factor in deciding the outcome of the battle, which is a controversial subject at best, so for the sake of argument, we can assume the elephant was important. Other than this, nothing much survives on the battle, but the Seleucid king managed to secure a victory over the Gauls, and was hailed by his troops as Kalinikos, achiever of a beautiful victory. And later, according to the writer Appian, and Appian alone, mind you, this was where Antiochus was granted the title of Soter, Savior. It was at this point the last major raid by the peoples of the Celts into Greece, Asia Minor, was finished. The remaining Celtic survivors, whether out of mercy or political and military usefulness, would be settled in Central Asia Minor by Antiochus, in the area of more familiar to us as Galatia. Their settlers and descendants, known as the Galatians, would continue to serve as mercenaries and more throughout the Hellenistic period, but we'll deal with them another day. The Celtic invasion of Greece and Asia Minor had a tremendous impact on the Hellenistic world. It had resulted in the Antigonid line retaking control of Macedon, strengthened the confidence of the Greeks to form the Achaean League, while at the same time creating hostility between the Aetolian League and her ungrateful neighbors. It had also secured Nicomedes' dynasty to the Bithynian throne, and finally reaffirmed Seleucid power in Asia Minor. 
Lastly, it had resulted in the creation of the idea of the Galatian peoples, who would continue to play a role in Hellenistic politics and beyond. Thus ends our two-part series on the Celtic invasion of Greece. Next episode, I will be covering the topic of Hellenistic kingship, which was voted for by fans on Twitter. And after that will be a bit of narrative weaving. I will be doing a two-episode series on early Rome. The first will cover Roman history from the kingdom to the early republic. And the second will be covering the Roman military institutions of the manipular legion. This topic has been well covered in podcast form before. Most obviously by Mike Duncan's History of Rome. But I felt I could take a bit of a different approach to it. Then, after this, I will be finally covering Pyrrhus and Epirus, which I have been teasing you all with for the last few months. Thank you all for listening. If you liked the show and want to hear more, please consider subscribing to me on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you are on iTunes, please leave a 5-star review to help the show grow. If you need a bit of visual aid to accompany the podcast you've just listened to, check out my website in the link in the podcast description, which will provide show notes such as timelines, who's who's, images, and source lists. To keep up with show news, receive interesting facts and photos, or participate in the direction of the show by providing feedback or taking part of polls, please follow me on Twitter at Twitter handle HellenisticPOD. That's all one word. All of these links will be provided in the episode description and show notes. So, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>